Welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey. <laughs> and today on the show, we've got Addie Lipson. Uh, she plays in the band Tomatillo. Uh, she um, plays, she shreds on guitar. I've seen it. I seen it. Eyewitness. It's, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> so catch a show uh, if you're around. And also uh, she is, um, she's in, you're, you were in AmeriCorps for a year. Yeah, for a couple of years there. A couple of years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you've concluded your service, is my understanding? That I have. Congratulations. Thank you. What are you doing now? Um, I work for a non-disclosed company. <laughs> I work with uh, people who are unemployed or have been laid off or lost their jobs due to things outside their own control. I work with them and I get them either reemployment services or get them trainings into high demand fields like manufacturing, um, not housekeeping, wow, what's the other one? Hospitality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a list of ones that are just like projected to boom where like people are unable to fill these positions quick enough. So I oh. take people that have been beat down by the system mm -hmm. and get them on the better end of the system. That's great. Well, the man beats us down, but some far worse than others. It's great to have people like you to uh, help them get back on their feet. So, Addie, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Good. Uh, thank you for bringing the beer. Um, our uh, favorite, um, our favorite River West brew. Milwaukee um, water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you, how long have you been living in Milwaukee? I moved here in March 2017. Uh, first, I was in Avenues West, down by Marquette, but okay. then um, that, that was only because that was the only opening around March, because uh, it was student housing, someone had to move for an internship. So I lucked out there, had a little studio, but uh, moved to River West last summer, so that's going to be summer 2018. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's summer, summer 2018, and yeah, uh, yeah I, I love it here. I found my found my neighborhood. You know. Good. Yeah. Ditto. Um, I was on the east side for four years, actually damn near five, but uh, I was, uh, it was about time to burst out of that bubble, um, you know, the, the UWM crowd, which does hold a special place in my heart, Yeah, had a, some great times out there, but it was time to move to a neighborhood that was more like, more of a community and less like a neighborhood. Um, it was, and uh, fun fact, I now have actually, I live like a block away from you now. Everyone lives a block away yeah. from me now. <laughs> Dude, guess who, guess who my next door neighbor is? Who? Evan Froyland. No way, that means my basis is your next door neighbor. Dude, Dude. shout out to that street corner where all my friends live apparently. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but um, yeah, I know a lot of great dogs, uh, a lot of uh, great um, you know, dive eats, a lot of uh, just you know, great people that love to be outside. Yeah, I... like what, what, what I find about, uh, I don't wanna make any generalizations about any of the neighborhoods, but what I found in Avenues West while living there that was mirrored in the east side from what I've heard from other folk is that since it's so close to all the big colleges, like yeah. um, it's it's a highly mobile community. Yeah. So like uh, a lot of it's just based on like, how can we have short-term residents, students, mm -hmm. 
But when it comes, when I was in River West, and this is the first neighborhood in my life that I've experienced this firsthand, is that like it's a neighborhood community. So people are there yeah. to stay. Exactly. So because of that, uh, my, my neighbors got like a whole composting thing in their mm-hmm. backyard. They got their beekeepers. Yeah. And wow. It's like on the other side of me, I got like a whole family living there. <laughs> that's amazing. It's a, it's a community, and that's yeah. that's some good shit. Totally. Um, you see, like. I've also noticed a really key difference between living on the east side and in River West is when you're walking down the street in River West, people actually like make eye contact and say hi to you. They don't do that on the east side. Everyone <laughs> keeps their head down. They're just like trying to get to class or trying to get to work, whatever. But like in River West, people actually like acknowledge you. Um, no yeah. matter if you're a complete stranger. I was literally taking out the trash the other day and some lady that lives behind me like uh, literally like called out and was like, Morning! And I, was, <laughs> and I was like, hi! It's great to be here! Wow, like, and I, like, I was that, like, made, that was such a small gesture, but it made my day. Um, What's that Midwest charm? It is, really is. So, Addie, so what we talk about on uh, Mr. Nice Guy, we talk about love and fear and how it manifests in our creative and passionate minds. Sure. You are a. In the short term, in the short span, we've been friends, which has been about four, four months. months now, March, uh, when I covered your show. Um, shout out Breaking Henry. Breaking Henry. And um, guys over there. I, yeah, I, I, I broke and entered the River West Public House, and I am uh, mad. <laughs> good. <laughs> good. I'm glad that. Um, yeah, and I'm glad we came in contact, and um, we'll get that later. Um, but I... I don't want to have a body count on the screen. Yeah, true. <laughs> oh, man, I'm... We had body counts for days on this table. <laughs> but I, I kind of, like, knew right away you were a very passionate person. You were very... But you're very, like, um... You're lovably extroverted. Uh, you love uh, good people and good music. Um, that's kind of what you live for. Tell me a little bit about, um... I guess, uh... Like, uh, so where did you, I guess, because I know you that you bounced around a lot, like, growing up and stuff. I guess, like, where did you start finding music as an outlet for yourself? Well, uh, music has <laughs> always been a large part of my family. Uh, my grandfather worked with uh, Warner Brothers and actually tried to oversee the uh, Warner Electra Atlanta merger. So he sure. was there when WA was born. Wow. Uh, a couple times he was in the studio with Frank Sinatra. Oh, so dope. like he he was in. Nice. Um, he had three sons, and of course like like father like son. They all got into music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they all played guitar. They all played bass. Like um, they had their own little bands going on. Nice. So. So my dad was the only one of those three to have kids, uh-huh. so sure. uh, he, he got less involved than the others, but uh, growing up, music was always a large part of it. So I was in California, and uh, I had this like bougie, private violin teacher oh, wow, down nice. in Morgan Hill, California. Fascinating. And I would go to, the, I'd go to her house, and... I knew it was like a bougie place because it was the first and only place I ever saw like gold-plated doorknobs. Jesus. I would go to the bathroom and take a shit just so I could touch that doorknob. <laughs> yeah, damn like, yeah. yeah. So I started on the Suzuki method, which uh, for, for, for those who are unaware of the Suzuki method, 
basically listen to the same thing over and over and over again until you're yeah. so annoyed that you have to pick up an instrument and get it out. Sure. So I got a really strong ear from the get-go. Um, and uh, uh, before I transitioned, I was male. And I went through like this little brother phase where I was like, I want to do everything my brother does, but better. Sure. So he started to play guitar oh, yeah. because my dad played guitar and he wanted to like be just like him. So like a sibling rivalry sort of thing. Yes, sibling rivalry toward it turned uh, life passion. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, from 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 there, like I picked up bass and then I picked up guitar and I got really into it. So I was like, I got my uh, first uh, Squire Stratocaster. Oh, fancy. Third grade, two thousand three. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. Squire. Let's not get too excited. But yeah. that was a long that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. So even, 16 even, years. Damn. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I got this like strat and I was like, oh so I was like learning like all the stuff by the Who and the monkeys mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Because like that's what my dad listened to. My dad was into a lot of the same shit. The Who is like his favorite band. That was my first show. Oh, really? Yeah. I saw the Who in Mountain View, California, Dude, October twenty sixth, wow. two thousand six. Holy shit. Yeah, I've got the CD and everything. That's amazing. Mm. Um, I would love to... I would still totally fucking see the Who to this day. Of course. Like, I don't care if they're skin and bones starting to turn to dust. I'm going to pay $50 yeah. for that ticket. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... Uh, from, from, from there, like, I got really into guitar. And then high school hit. And uh, I was eligible for these uh, classes. Project Lead the Way, which is a initiative to give college level entry engineering courses to high school students in exchange for college credit. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was a project lead the way and I focused way more on like being a fucking nerd because mm. uh, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer because at that time wow. I was living in Connecticut. Okay. And uh, as, as much as I hate to admit it now, Connecticut has like a very large defense contractor thing like a Sikorsky's out there. So I was like, Little high school freshman, he was like, oh, I'm going to make planes for Sikorsky. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I now realize that I do not want brown blood on my hands, but... Uh, so you're not making uh, planes for... No, I'm getting people jobs making planes. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, so, okay, sure. Uh, sure. So it's, I guess, still uh, serves its purpose. Yeah, like but, one or two degrees removed. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but, nice. um... So, uh... I was, I was dating this girl at the time, because that's how all good stories start, yeah, and uh, her, her dad died, and we both went through like a really like sad time, and I went through a sad time because she was going through a sad time. I'm not going to compare the two, because hers was way more sad, because she had to, like her dad was dead. Right, yeah. It was wild. Yep. So my mom, uh, bless her for raising me, don't know how she did it, but... Uh, Shout out to all moms. Yo, um, moms though. Moms oh, are dope. fuck. Nancy is a great mom. My mom is, I just talked to her today. My so. mom got me into uh, the Greater Hartford Academy of Performing Arts okay. in Connecticut. Sure. Which was like an art school. And uh, I got there and started looking at jazz guitar. I knew nothing about it, so there was like an audition, so I played uh, a transcription of Stevie Ray Vaughan's Little Wing. Oh, okay. Nice. Sure. Yeah. It was. <laughs> Uh, so after I got in, I talked to my teachers. I was like, so like, what was up with, was that cool? Was that a good audition? And they were like, everyone else just shredded metal. That was a beautiful, like, oh, <laughs> that yeah. was a break for us. Yeah. So I was like, all right, hell yeah. 
So uh, that that's actually where I met my current partner ten years ago, Danny. I love you. Shout out Danny. Shout out Danny. I haven't met you, but <laughs> shout out you uh, for being uh, her lovely partner. Thank you. But um, you're welcome. So from there, I uh, learned how to read. A lot of guitarists don't know how to read because it's a bitch of an instrument to read on. Yeah, There's like true. six different ways to play each note, and then you want to play chords on that. What the fuck? Yeah. All on one staff? You kidding me? Yeah. So from from there. After that, like, uh, I didn't really want to go to college, but my mom guilted me into it. She, uh, she was like, you're probably too stupid to do it's it anyway. It's a real mom Fuck thing. you, mom. It's I want to go to college. Total mom thing to do. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, fuck her. To their credit, though, I, wouldn't, I would have been incredibly complacent in the college applying process if it weren't for mom, which is what she actually, like... Cause like I didn't try anything in high school. Mm-hmm. Like I was, you know, a, a, I was a total fuck. But I, my mom actually like was the one that found me schools that had like the major I was looking for and everything, and she found UWM for me. So like, that was what, you know, is what is the reason I'm here in Milwaukee. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. but and and you're using your degree. Exa- yeah. As well, because I a, couldn't use my journalism in, in a very, in, but in a very DIY way. Like in a way that's true not, to your roots. Exactly. But you're doing it. You're but, living. Thank you. Thank Hell you. yeah. Hell yeah. So you applied to you so she she pushed you into applying for college. I got into Western Connecticut State University for jazz guitar. Okay. And uh because I started music so early, I entered that school ahead of the curve. Sure. I'm not gonna let that be a point of gloating because since I was ahead of the curve, I didn't learn how to work on it whatsoever. Mm. I would show up to my 8 a.m. classes, like, still toasty from the night before. Oh, yeah, right. And that's like, a thing. That's a real yeah, thing. that is a thing. You want to wake a... up at what time for what? That's a fucking thing. <laughs> so, like, yeah. I, I kind of, like, fucked around. So it got to sophomore year, and uh, I didn't, like, I, I plateaued, like, real hard. Because at that point, like, I was really starting to, like, look into, like, the gender shit. Sure. Because yeah. that'll, that'll fuck you. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, after after that, like, um, I picked up a second degree in journalism. Oh, hey, cheers on cheers to journalism. Yeah, good, good on you for actually using it. Mm. It's like, I, I I walked into school. I, I walked out of school with like a dual degree in jazz performance and journalism, acting like it's nineteen fifty <laughs> or some shit. Get some shit, yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> stupid. But yeah, no, that's respect to that. I mean. But I'm using journalism in a... Don't oh, worry about it. I'll pick it up later. It's okay. Uh, but journalism, however, I'm trying to utilize in a very unorthodox way. You're using it in a way that builds community. Yes, exactly. That is... Like, I don't believe in... I just don't believe in utilizing my degree in, in journalism to serve, you know, the greater purpose of, like, corporate media. Mm-hmm. Which, ironically so, my senior seminar for journalism was Political Economy of the Media. Fuck. And it literally... So Addy, <laughs> I swear, that class turned me into a Marxist. Like, Good. Yeah, <laughs> Good. Like, that class demolished my entire, like, um, sort of, like, accepted at face value... Acceptance of face value for capitalism and the way the media works, which... Is fascinating because, like, it 
almost like it kind of like makes you not want to go into the media, even though it's like the final class in media that you take before you graduate. Yeah. And that made me not want to work for any major news network. It made me not want to work for any media conglomerate. It made me not want to work for any corporation. I was working for Starbucks at the time. Um, They're good students. Starbucks is, okay, Starbucks, as far as corporations go, is good. I, yeah, like, you're, like you said, good, Starbucks. Good to their workers. Yeah, yeah, like, that, that class, like, warped my entire perception of, like, what I was originally going to use my degree for. Because I, I had interned for NPR, I had interned for Channel 12, which is ABC. Like, and they were great experiences, but... You know, like I, I, I don't think, I, th I think that a lot of journalism these days is, it's, it's critique. You know, it's bias. It's inserting some kind of like statement about the character of something or somebody, mm. and that's not, that's not what I want to do. You know, I like I around junior year I decided I want to do music journalism. But I'm not gonna be writing for Pitchfork or yeah. be the next Needle Drop or write for Billboard or some shit. Like, that it's not my job because I'm not a musician. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a fucking musician. I wanna write for. I wanna write to bring out the humanity and the character of who you are and why you do what you do. That's. Thus, this podcast. Exactly. That's, that's the goal of all journalism I've ever done. Can, can I build upon that? Please do. So. My, my undergrad was a dual major in, like, jazz guitar and journalism. Sure. But my master's degree that I get, like, three weeks, four weeks from now is in... Soul, it's master's in social justice and community organizing. So a large part of my degree has been comparative social politics. Mm -hmm. So what goes into that is, like, understanding... And my professors won't use this language, but we're all under the same guise here. It's understanding propaganda and its role in like not only community building but community complacency. Yeah. So when, especially when I was like studying for that and understanding different journalism ethics, different like frames of writing, I looked at journalism, especially in the wake of the Trump era, and it's like, this is not a field that I want to be part of. Yeah. Because. Uh, on one hand, like, yes, you could, like, talk about, like, truth or lies on either side. But because of, like, framing, yeah, the way journalists write, and I'm not grouping all journalists in here. I don't want to make overarching assumptions about right. the entire group yeah. of professionals. Yeah. But the <clears throat> largely, those that profit most from the market are those that further feed polarization. And in that goes different algorithms that uh, are incorporated with social media, which is how most people uh, in the emerging generations get their news. Yeah. And it's like, there's there's this polarization in journalism that like, if you're making like fully factual news, the only people that are going to give a fuck are the academics. Mm -hmm. And like that's, the academics don't do much outside of academia. Because right, like yeah. once you get your degree, it's like, okay, where's the scratch? Yeah. So... I didn't want to be part of that system. Yeah. I didn't want to further not only fuel inequalities, but fuel ideologies as a whole. Oh, and yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna segue into this shit now. Please do. So I, I asked Danny, my beautiful partner, uh, Danny. <laughs> I asked Danny. I was like, okay, so this podcast is about love and fear. I got nothing. What are my mm -hmm. loves and fears? 
so they told me like you fear indoctrination i'm like wait what excuse me <laughs> that's a it's a big word i don't i don't you <laughs> you don't hear to describe uh one's like you know existential worry or anything like that but that's true like yeah. it's just a matter of finding that that buzzword so i'm just going to go on a rant about that please do uh so but my degrees coupled together make me extremely wary of propaganda. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, would, I grew up socialized male. Um, from that, you get a certain worldview. You get a certain identity. There's different social norms, yeah. modes of communications. Yeah. And then when I started transitioning, it was like the blinders came off. And I say this not in a way of like trying to admonish those experiences, but like to acknowledge that when you're socialized male you have a certain mindset that's built upon all the social reproduction of like all other males mm -hmm. in a patriarchal system yes very much so it's like i know how men talk about women behind closed doors because oh, yeah. i was that man yes after like starting transitioning and going through a mental breakdown or two i started to like look at the media i was consuming and like I was like, how do I have my thoughts? And I realized that after after enough like acid and DMT, you get to this conclusion. <laughs> a, like, we are not individuals. We are the products of the systems that we exist in and the social reproduction that we went through within those systems. Yeah. So I became extremely hesitant of indoctrination to the point that I don't consume media. I don't watch movies. I don't read books. I have no idea what TV shows are going on. I don't read the news because I understand it's bias. It's like I just understand, I just work within my little community and try to make it better using the means that I've learned through my experience and my education. Yeah. So my, my fear about indoctrination is that I understand that like everything you digest has a call to action attached to it. And because we live in a capitalistic system, every call to action results in certain people getting money and certain people not getting money. Yeah. So the exchange of capital. Right. So when it comes to like journalism, every piece, and even more so since we're in like an acceleratingly polar culture, yeah. every piece <clears throat> has a certain call to action that has real life outcomes. So let's look at Actually, let's not look at things. I don't want to talk about politics. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be like recorded saying so. I think much. that you're. I think that you're you're hitting many nails on the head, though, um, because you've said some of the most postmodern things I've ever heard in in a in a very like mindfuck way. Like because you're absolutely right. Our perceptions of reality and societal norms or just are very the very like structuralism of society as we know it is all based on media and it's all based on like what we were brought up to understand whether it's you know yeah the the cartoons we watch as as a kid or you know what was expected of us when we were in school or you know in and especially what what you uh touched on earlier like uh what's acceptable versus not acceptable in the gender binaries we're in this 
fascinating age of undoing and unlearning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I differ from you because I love movies and I love shows and I like I watch a lot of that shit, but I yeah. kind of challenge myself and also, you know, kind of relate my own personal experiences to the way a movie or a show or music, um, you know, express a, a thought or a feeling or a concept um, as, you know, I've grown to either understand or or un-understand, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, and it, it, a lot of it depends on the time periods, you know, like, the, especially like... Racist Disney. Yeah, racist, <laughs> Disney, like racist Disney. Or just misogynist anything up until, yeah. you know, feminist movements were, like, actively, like, you know, when they received, when they had uh, an uprising in the 70s and, you know, beat and so forth. But point being is like I try to keep I try to keep in mind that like society was so much different back then when this was made and it's like yeah it can be it can be acknowledged as like culturally significant for its time sure like there's many things that are funny or entertaining or great movies that came out back then Mm -hmm. but like if something like that was made now it would be it would be you know very inconscionable. Yes, it yeah. would be. It would be defective to the progress we made as, as a society. So here's here's my thing about progress, and this is where uh, my partner and I differ a little bit. Okay. So they love media because they they grew up in a. I don't want to say like the same, but like a similar environment as me because we both grew up in like Connecticut suburbs, which sure. have their own. They have problems. Sure, sure. But they refuse to confront. But anyway, because <laughs> they don't have to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, fuck you, Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> but um, so so they, they they view emerging media and like progressive media as a wonderful way of like being able to digest new voices and perspectives. So like there are so many more. Um, Netflix specials that are produced by a woman of color and there's so much more trans and queer representation and so much more representation of intersecting identities that other people have not fully expressed and even when it comes to like the resurgence of like uh, past material it's through the lens of a counter narrative Mm -hmm. and like there's so much more progressive agendas being promoted through media yeah which is great. Yeah. And like at least the normalcy of marginalized people groups bringing them more to the center. Which totally. is fantastic. Yes. However, my hang up is that all of this is being done through avenues that are and have continued to be controlled by people that already are like above. So That's what the capitalism kind of plays in, yeah? Yeah. Because the people that are in charge of like Netflix distribution, right. or like the producers, or like um, when it comes to TV shows, people that are in yeah. charge. Yeah, great example. The pride logos on every corporation you can think of. Yeah. Like the how every single corporation like adopted the the, the LGBTQ plus flag um, as part of like Pride Month, which you know is great that they're coming out in a, in such a large scale support of Pride Month, but it it's makes them money. Yes. Yeah. It's capitalizing off of marginalized identity. Exactly. It still makes money. <laughs> it, it, I have to like always check myself because like 
uh, as a trans woman, there's so little information about sex education, sex awareness. Right, yeah. Because I, I was supposed to hate myself for having a dick, but like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't. But, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. But, um, like, uh, I, th what I read most about, like, what, what's like most uh, helpful to me is stuff that Vice and Broadly are doing, which are under the same umbrella. That's, I don't know if it's like still owned. But like Gavin McGinnis, thank God he's gone out of. He's Vice. gone. Oh, thank God. But now, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> all, all the things that made me more aware of my identity led to his profit. So it's like that's why I'm like extremely hesitant about indoctrination because like even when it comes to progressive media that I'm digesting, the gems that Danny gives me, that I ends up like actually looking into. <laughs> yeah. But when it comes to those gems, I understand that like people are profiting off of trying to indoctrinate people into a certain worldview, thus creating more inequalities off of creating division. Yeah. I don't care if it's an article that says literally every thought I've had and have failed to ascribe the vocabulary to. It's still leading to the profit of people that have mm -hmm. always had it better. Yeah. Even like, you know, I talked to people that, um, uh, shout out Alan Schultz. I just had him on. Alan Schultz though. Yeah. I just oh had Alan Schultz goodness. on the show last week. Uh, we talked about abolitionism. God, I love that guy. Yeah. No, Alan's great. But love you, Alan. yeah, Alan's dope. And we talked about abolitionism, which sort of is like somewhat of an answer to a lot of this indoctrination. Exactly. Exactly. And like, but before we go in for further into abolition, I just want to like close indoctrination yeah, with, sure. with two thoughts. Go ahead, yeah. I view uh, the profit of progressive agendas kind of the same. You ever see Aladdin? Yeah. I saw it for the first time very recently because I don't watch anything. Uh <laughs> sure, yeah. There's a VHS I had when I was a kid, but that was really the. the I. I yeah, it was just a Disney movie. I, I had like every Disney movie on VHS, but yeah. I don't remember Aladdin that much. Well, you, you know you know the scene where Jafar gets his powers and shit? Sure, sure. So there's a scene where Jafar gets uh, powers from the genie. Okay. But uh, the, the ultimate uh, theme of the plot is that Jafar can be powerful, but because the genie granted Jafar power, the genie will always be more powerful. Mm -hmm. So I look at the proliferation of progressive agendas and how they're actually being monopolized on by media. Yeah. And like, and now that I have like the reflective process to understand like how my entire worldview while I was a socialized male was based upon the media I consumed, it's like even with progressive media, I have this like reflex to be extremely hesitant about it because I'm like, what mindsets is this piece of media forcing me to have mm -hmm. and it's yeah. like it comes to a point where like all of your thoughts are sponsored by whatever media outlets you digest yeah it's kind of like when you see people walking around with like oh i'm like all about our apostle or i'm all about like this specific brand i have like yeah. an entire adidas sweatsuit which i want but it's yeah. like it comes to a point where your entire ideology is based off of whatever john oliver says you know that's so true, actually. Like, yeah, so I, and that's I, why I'm hesitant about that shit. Yeah. Because you just become the corporate sponsors. And you, you know? see that in every industry. I'll, I'll bring it to music. Please. Look at Needle Drop. 
Like, you, do you know the needle drop? No, I don't watch anything. Okay, okay. So he's, <laughs> all right, so he's a he's a YouTube uh, he's a YouTube music critic, and he does album reviews. He does track reviews. He has like a um, a uh, he has like a, a side channel where he talks about social justice issues. But he like is that, is that the bald guy with the checkered shirt? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's him. I see memes about him. Yeah, yeah, that's the needle drop. Uh, Melon, as they call him. Um, but he, um, Anthony Fantano. That's the one. Yeah, that's him. So, I, like, I, I happen to love the needle drop, but I love him for the reason that I'm constantly, like, I either challenge things he says, or I like to compare my opinion to his, whatever. But there are people that religiously follow his critiques of albums and literally will, like, not like or will happen or start liking different albums based on what he says he is like fucking stupid yeah when it comes to music criticism like he is like viewed as like an end-all be-all outlet and like while yeah i find him entertaining i like it is in the same way like the the john oliver reference that you just made because i also like john oliver but i try to like separate my like separate my bias from his you know, it's it's sort of like that. That kind of goes back into that tribalism, that ideological like devotion to a particular commentator or a particular news outlet, or like it's it's like your 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 whole worldview becomes heavily finite. Yes. So. Yeah, and, and I feel that, and like even in this conversation, I said I understand that I brought up John Oliver. It's like. John Oliver is just the figurehead for his writers. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which are subsidiaries of like, who, who are they owned by now? Is it still, uh... I don't know. It's some AT&T shit now? Sure, yeah, well, um, he like, he, he talks a lot of shit about AT&T and his show. That's, that's why like, I'm very happy that this is what you're using your degree for. Because I couldn't find an ethical way to use that journalism degree. It's like you're building community, which is like what everyone should do with their skills, because community comes group power, it comes resistance. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I couldn't do that shit. So I went into AmeriCorps for two years. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I built community that way. There you go. Hey, community comes in uh, many avenues. Um, we need a lot of different. Uh, it's a lot of synergy. Yeah. Um, and uh, so. So you came here from Connecticut based on AmeriCorps. Yep. Uh, first program I was in was City Year. Shout out to City Year Milwaukee. Lovely guys over there. Doing great work. Mm -hmm. uh, so Connecticut's a very expensive state. So it's very hard to save up to leave Connecticut. And I didn't sure. want to be in Connecticut because who the fuck wants to be in their hometown, you know? Yeah. And with a, with a state that small, Every time it's your hometown. You're in mm -hmm. Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So I... Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. So I, I, I applied to City Year, and they had this like uh, drop-down menu with all the cities. And uh, way down at the bottom, there's one that said, send me anywhere. And I Whoa. clicked that because I just wanted to get out of Connecticut that badly. Like, all these cities look great. Even the New Hampshire one. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I... Uh, I uh, had a phone interview, filled out all these surveys and shit, and they're like, how about City or Milwaukee? I'm like, I've never heard of Milwaukee. It sounds perfect. There you go. <laughs> I, I remember uh, I, I had a buddy over, and I got the phone call, and they're like, you've 
accept it to City of Milwaukee. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I looked at LA, I looked it up on uh, Wikipedia. Mm. I looked up Milwaukee on Wikipedia. Wiki- yeah, I'm it's like Cream Wikipedia. City, Steeple City, as like Beer, beer City. city. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Those are all the things I enjoy. There you go. <laughs> Bit iffy on the church back then, but yeah, like. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was like, oh shit, okay, like, this looks interesting, and then, like, I scrolled down, I saw all the brewing history, I'm like, awesome, I love beer, let's do this, they and do then the- I scrolled down a bit further, and it's like, racism, I'm like, oh yeah, segregation, gentrification, that's, that's why City Year is there, yeah. so, <laughs> by the way, did you do the, like, front tour yet? I have not, oh. I, I have toured no breweries. Okay, Lakefront Brewery Tour. It's on record. It's. I'm gonna take you to do it because it's fun. It's sad because like I know half the people that work there. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. They can tell me everything. Like we're gonna do a lakefront brewery tour because it's super fun <laughs> and their beer is great. Their their beer is fantastic. Shout out. Uh, they they have that like um, River West Stein. River West Stein. Like fantastic. I owe half my life to River West Stein. I've only been there for three years. Like, yeah. There you fun. go. But like on, on top of that, they had that like Mexican Sichuca ale. Oh yeah, like sure. a year ago or so. I'm still thinking about that. They actually have. They're like the number one kosher brewery in the United States. They're kosher. They are. They're at, like Israel is like their one of their big. Uh, um, they they get a lot of beer apparently from Lakefront Brewery because it's kosher, which is pretty cool. Like from I mean, Steeple City, huh? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so wow. You learn a lot on that tour. Time, holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, and we're drinking PBR, so. This is all the budget allowed. Yeah, but that's okay, because PBR is wholesome. You ever look up the history of Pabst? Uh, no, I haven't, actually, really. This fucking dude. Okay, so, Pabst, he was an immigrant. So, he came over, and uh, at, at age 14 became a steamboat captain on Lake wow. Michigan. He'd go between Chicago, Milwaukee, and Lansing. I think Lansing? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I got you. But, uh... So, at the time, there's this guy in Milwaukee, Philip Best, and he owned <laughs> Best Brewing Company. Wow. He was an engineer by trade, and he started a brewing company just because, like, who doesn't love beer in Milwaukee? Yeah. And, uh, he was, interesting, he was an interesting guy because, uh, he, he started this uh, clan of creatives and like every Friday night they'd all like meet in like one of the catacombs of the brewery because mm-hmm. like back then to keep the beer cold you had to like dig tunnels and everything and bury the beer in there sure okay yeah real quick the term growler comes from child laborers that were in those tunnels oh, that would have wow. giant things of uh, beer to pour for all the employees so that's what a growler is because they would always complain about oh, it oh my god yeah why can't they just like do their job without complaining <laughs> 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 fuck but, child labor holy but, <laughs> Shit, that is fascinating. So Philip Best had a daughter. Wow, okay. One day, Pabst is doing his little boat thing. Yeah. Sees a woman drowning in Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. Scoops her. It's Philip Best's daughter. Wow, okay. Saves her life. And two weeks later, they're married. Wow. So because Pabst is now Best's son... He's like, okay, you get a share of this. Okay. So Philip Best dies. I never read why he died or how he died. Sure. But, um, and, and this dude, like, he brought engineering to, like, the beer world. So mm-hmm. he, 
uh, did different like bottling techniques for beer to make shipping it easier. Yeah. And like uh, back then, he he invented the first like stone bottle, okay. which like helped with transportation sure. of beer. And like he had it like squared off so you could fit as much beer as possible into the horse carriage. Okay. You're but, much. I gotta say, you're a much better Milwaukee uh, historian than I am. Who does who does love the history of beer? Yeah, no, for real though. Um, I beer is like a, you know, it sounds bad, but beer is like a, a total release for me because like I don't I don't like liquor that much. I never did. Yeah, beer is so much more of like a. It's a very like um, progressive drunk. Uh, you don't. You can drink a beer and you can relax, yeah. But when you're drinking tequila or vodka or anything, like you don't what's, relax. What's yeah. You don't relax. And also, it's like uh, when I start hormones, like hormones like moves your body fat in all these different places. Sure. And, like gets rid of some and adds some more. Yeah. It's like just like my body composition changed. I couldn't handle liquor anymore. It's like, but now I'm in like the best beer city on in this hemisphere. So it's like yeah. fuck it. I'm but, just gotta say, I'm glad you're here. Yo, I love being here. Cheers. Fuck it. So, best dies. Pabst takes over the company. Okay. First thing he does, changes the fucking name. Right, yeah. So, he's doing stuff very business-oriented. He definitely built upon a lot of the engineering marvels that Best made. So, where PBR comes into the mix. So... So, Chicago World Fair. I don't oh, remember yeah. the year. 1893. Thank you. Damn. Okay. <laughs> I knew that. Chicago World Fair. All the beers are there because at that point, uh, Alexander Mitchell already made his, like, cross-country fucking railroad. Yeah. Largest railroad system in the world at the time, and the central hub was right here in Milwaukee. Oh. Which is why everything in the South Side is named after Alexander Mitchell. Anyway. Uh... So, Pabst takes his beer down to the Chicago World Fair. Okay, yeah. Everyone's using his bottling techniques. All the beers look the same. They're practically indistinguishable. But he's like, it's the Chicago World Fair. We deserve a little flair. So he got so much ribbon. Oh, yeah. And he wow. put them on all the bottles. And it was the only thing that distinguished it apart from all the other bottles. So, at this point, there wasn't like a name for the beer. But everyone that went to the World Fair was like, I'll take the one with the blue ribbon. I'll take the one with the blue ribbon. Blue ribbon, please. Paps, blue ribbon. Paps is like, oh shit. So, wow. this beer hails from that World Fair. Wow. I've been using the same recipe ever since. That's amazing. Yeah, this is a over 100-year-old beer right here. That is... <laughs> Damn, man, that is such a... It's a fascinating story, too. Yeah. It's like, I mean... Yeah, I, I didn't know that it had its origins in Chicago, too, but that's... So, why... Do you know why it got associated with hipster subculture? I don't know any facts, but I have a lot of biases. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I come from out east, like, uh, all the... <laughs> All the people in Alston, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, would be knocking these back oh, while yeah. rats would be flown by in the fucking alleys. But I don't know. I think it's just because, like, it's accessible, it's cheap, you could slam a 12-pack in one podcast episode. Uh, <laughs> wow. Are you going to actually um, switch my uh, sponsorship dreams from hams to PBR? 
You ever think about hams? I drink hams. That's my. It's it's far more. It's cheaper than this, actually. You're not going to the right stores. Okay, okay. Hams is a for a thirty rack at Pick and Save is like eleven bucks. That is unbeatable. Okay, so like I and damn. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hams. <laughs> hams is pretty fucking. I, cheap. I eat my words here. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, so you started, you know, playing music. I know that it's like your self-care oh, and everything. Back to music. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like your self-care, like, and uh, so you started, how did you, I guess, like, start finding uh, an outfit to play with in Milwaukee once you moved here? Well, especially when I started my journalism uh, part of my degree, I... I was like completely ostracized to the music department at Westcon. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that this might actually have been what happened, but this is my perception of what happened because mm -hmm. I know that people from Westcon are going to be watching this. I don't want to burn any bridges. Um, so I felt a lot of guilt for quitting, you know? And like I plateaued hard, so I didn't touch guitar for a while. Mm -hmm. When I moved out here, I still didn't touch guitar for a year. So, um, February 2018. That's when I started like actually hanging out with Nolan. Band Shout out Nolan Benson. Nolan Benson. He's on a different episode. Check that out. Yes. Talks about his book. Great guy. Yes. Curtain Call. Curtain out Call. on July 21st. Um, Nolan is one of the sweetest dudes I've ever met. Um, He's a big sweetheart, yeah. Very much so. And I started hanging out with him and like I felt seen and heard because like when you're in Connecticut, like, the, the, there are a bunch of, like, different, like, regional dialects of jazz. Mm -hmm. I was very much trained in the New York dialect. Chicago's guy dialect, Memphis, New Orleans. Oh, my God, New Orleans. Yeah. But Los Angeles, too. Los Angeles kind of just following, like, what Ornette Coleman did. But anyway. Um, I came here. I started playing the things that I, like, the little bit of muscle memory I had left from that part of my degree. Mm-hmm. And I had thought very lowly of it because, like, it was the, um, it was the outcome of something that I quit on. And I feel very hard about being a quitter. Yeah. Due to, like, deeply rooted trauma, which I'm not going to get into. But when Nolan heard me play, he made me feel seen, heard, valid. Mm -hmm. He made me feel valued. Mm -hmm. as a musician because I was doing things that aren't part of this regional dialect. Yeah. I'm not trying to say like, oh, it's better or it's worse. It's just not something you hear here. It's a different accent, if yeah. you will. So we started jamming together as a form of self-care. And it was fun because every weekend I'd go over on a Saturday and I'd be like, okay, well, let's do like grunge today. Let's do yeah. Neo Soul today. Yeah. And we started to like just experiment with it. And we went through like so many different genres. So on Nolan's phone, there's uh, every weekend there's two or three different recordings of us doing duets of like a different genre, just trying to find the sound. And like in in, in retrospect, it was trying to find the sound, but in the moment, it was like me showing up, probably hungover, <laughs> and being like, "Oh my god, I just want to play this today." And yeah. then Nolan would like make words on Spock. He's a beautiful linguist. Read mm. his book. But um, yeah, it was. It very quickly turned into a point of self-care. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, a dude that I was with at the time, who shall remain unnamed, was roommates with my bassist. 
Okay. My current bassist. And uh, from there, I set up a jam with Ben. And uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember my then uh, partner saying like, "Yeah, Ben didn't know you could play like that." I'm like, uh -huh. "Oh shit, okay." So then I started to invite Ben to the jams, and all of a sudden it was like, "Okay, we've got like a sound here." Mm -hmm. So then I was like, "Okay, let's find a drummer." Yeah. And I like my stakes as rare as it is to find a drummer in Milwaukee. Uh, so like <laughs> wow that's that's some good wordplay there yeah I, I i made a post about it on facebook and like a few different groups i'm like yo who the fuck plays drums yeah so uh cameron was in my network because i cameron is part of this uh, local church who shall remain unnamed and um he uh we, we had networked before because i did some work for them i did some photography work for them sure yeah so then cameron was like yo i play drums i'm like oh <laughs> let's uh let's set something up but i he so he runs the worship band at his church so i was okay. like okay if i play guitar for them he will play guitar he will play drums for me and that exchange worked wow so there you go that's some synergy right <laughs> so there. i answered two bands at the same time yeah, <laughs> um, sure so cameron started to jam with tomatillo i started to jam with that band and actually, it turned into one of the most formative groups of my life. Because um, a, a lot of my grad work focuses on how churches can be used as not only community spaces, but as the conduits for community organizing. Mm -hmm. Because you look at millennials and Gen Zers, and these are people that like have an intense drive for social justice and are able to like put large things on the line for standing up to injustices. Yeah. Like we see people standing up to ICE just cause. Um, yeah. Through being in that church, not only has it offered me a wonderful point of research and like applying lessons I'm learning in my grad program to the real world, but I've also been on like a little bit of a faith journey, not gonna really? lie here. Yeah, and it's like, being in that church has made me like a far better person mm -hmm. and like a better partner, better individual, better daughter, like better sister. Like I, so really like, it's, it's, it's funny that like I went from like going to music as a point of jealousy to going into music as a point of like self-care following trauma to exiting music because of self-guilt, going to music because of like self-care yet again. And then going into like a spiritual fucking journey. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know, it's not only has it come full circle, but I feel like, wow, that jazz guitar half of my degree was kind of worth it a little yeah, bit. Because like, it's opened up to this amazing network and like all these uh, opportunities for not only self discovery, but like professional development, have like a readily available community for research and that I'm using churchgoers as like a point of like personal advancement. Mm -hmm. Because all of this goes right back into the community toward like different um, initiatives, different studies on like how churches can further be like the conduits of social justice. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I think I talked about fear earlier with indoctrination, but I think love has got to be like building community and like having things come full circle, mm -hmm. having things that once were points of trauma and self-hate become yeah. points of self-flourishing and self-fulfillment. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're, yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. That's, 
flipping it upside down. Um, so like, how does uh, how would you say like that faith like still manifests in? Yeah, you know, I, I know like kind of been a rediscovery point of it with you know the church that you've been involved in. Like, where does the faith sort of play into your own world perceptions and your creativity? Depression sucks. It does. Yes. And especially in Wisconsin, we got that seasonal depression. Right, yeah. That hits. Terrible. That hits hard. Yeah. So, like, um, faith has started to become to me, like, the, I, there's the expression, like, don't believe in yourself, believe in the you that believes in yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I kind of, like, believe in faith as, like, the me that believes in myself. And that mm-hmm. me is like some sort of higher power, which I refuse to put a label to. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm agnostic as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so like, um, going going back to my partner, because like, at, as atheist as they are, like, I definitely feel God in this relationship. Sorry, babe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, um, there, you and I are both people that have like studied the craft of language. Yeah. And, like, how that could be led to, like, ideologies and, like, being able to, like, impart certain mindsets. But there are certain parts of my life, ever since I started this journey of faith, that, like, I'm incapable of ascribing a vocabulary to. Mm-hmm. And as someone who, like, continues to be a linguist and a writer, it's like, what is that? So, like, um, there are all these points in my life that I just feel a higher power. Yeah. Like, 4th of July... I had my Subaru Outback, because I'm gay as fuck, <laughs> full of my best friends, and we were going over the home bridge, and we were able to see all the fireworks shows at every town and county in mm-hmm. high distance. While everyone was laughing, we had Taco Bell in the car. Man, that's, that's real. Yeah. That's it's real. like, that was a moment that I felt a higher power, or like, when I was in Cleveland visiting my partner, we uh, took the train to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay. And after, like, the Tower City stop, it was just the two of us on the train. And we went on this... It was kind of like a hill, but not really. It was just, like, a bridge that went up and over the Cuyahoga. So okay, we did sure, that. Yeah. And it's like, we saw the lake in front of us. And it was just, like, open and so private to us. And then we got off at the station. There's no one there. It was completely quiet in this densely populated downtown area inside this abandoned station. How do I not feel a higher power there? So it's like this... Uh, journey with music has led me on this journey with faith where not only do I feel more whole in myself, but I feel more whole in every relationship that I have, whether it be romantic, physical, interpersonal, professional. It's like I I feel that. Mm-hmm. And it's mind-blowing to me that this thing that was once a point of trauma and self-hate has turned into one of the driving forces in my life. And like one of the feelings upon which I make a lot of life decisions that have worked very well in my favor. Like go. I'm dating someone that I've had a crush on for the past decade. That's marvelous. I have an amazing job. I'm finishing up my degree. Like yeah. doctorate programs are scouting me. They're calling me and shit. All because like I saw this opportunity to build myself and it's turned into like a foundational point. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'll drink to that. Yeah. It's beautiful. Fuck, man. So, um, you touched on this a little bit before, and I kind of want to, like, conclude with it. Um, sure. 
What? Well, yeah. So like, with the state of our state, and um, just I guess how a lot of your rejection of indoctrination, as you referred to, um, is just a big part of like how you perceive the world and everything. Where do you find um, an outlet through the abolitionism that we talked about before? Abolitionism. So I don't know if there's enough time in this interview to talk about abolitionism. You're gonna have to cut, yeah, cut, <laughs> cut it pretty briefly if if you can. Um. Well, in the context, let's use the prison industrial complex as a conduit to talk about abolitionism. So a lot of progressive reforms talk about like, hey, let's like cut down um, numbers in the prisons. Like, let's like have it be like more comfortable living situations that actually ascribe to uh, United Nations like humanity laws. Yeah. But, like, if you put, like, the right amount of people in each cell and, like, give them, like, pajamas and shit, it's only going to lead to, like, the legitimacy of prisons. Yeah. It's like, when you confront in unjust systems, unless you're coming from an abolitionist lens, you're coming from a, you're coming from a lens that makes that system of oppression more sustainable. Yeah. So abolition, definitely the way to go. And it's like... What can, but it, and like because of how deeply rooted a lot of this oppression and systems of power are in, are you know kind of just the realities that you know we've been taught to to accept. It's like what what can be undone? The first step is questioning your own innate reactions to things. It's like, how have I been indoctrinated to having this be a gut reaction? When you see a homeless person on the street, why don't you look them in the eye? So it's like, first understand how you've been indoctrinated into a certain worldview. Then, fucking bug. Yeah. Then, <laughs> yeah. then look into like what the roots of that system is that you have such a guttural reaction to. That's the first step of unlearning systems of oppression. Um, then, like, understand personally, and this is the hard part, how you benefit from that system of oppression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's so easy to say, like, oh, I'm not racist. But it's a lot harder to say, like, yo, I benefit as fuck from racist systems. White privilege. It's like, my hair yeah. can be natural any day of the fucking week. Like, I don't have to worry about my name on a resume being rejected just because of, like, the way it's spelled. Like... It's, it takes a lot of work to understand, like, one, why you think, well, first how you think, and then why you think, and then how you can correct that. A lot of that comes from, like, deeply, like, personal reflection. From there, only once you start that unlearning process, that's when you can understand the voices of marginalized communities that have been talking about this for centuries. Literally, Like, Fourth yeah. of July just passed. I've been persecuted for doing so. I, I saw so many fucking people talking about um, Frederick Douglass, uh, his his uh, eloquy about what Fourth of July means for a slave. But yeah, like people need to just do a lot of unlearning and understand like how their mindset is the outcome of the media they consumed. Yeah. All right, Addy. Um, we could have done this for hours, but we yeah. were crunched on time because of the attention spans that have been indoctrinated by the media. Like, this clip is longer than five seconds. Fucking scroll past it. Yeah. That's too long. I'm going to fucking lose attention. All right. Well, um, 
Addy, what keeps you up at night? My neighbors. Your neighbors. <laughs> Shit. Well, um, um, what puts you to sleep, though? <laughs> what puts me to sleep? Yeah, what puts you to sleep? Rum. Rum. <laughs> and PBR, of course. Like, what, mm. what, are we, what are we doing here? There you go. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. I've had a wonderful conversation. Um, not only about, like, music and everything, but we just, like, talked about a lot of real-ass shit. Like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, uh, thank you for watching, Mr. Nice Guy. We'll see you next time. Mr. Nice Guy.